How was everybody? Good, good, good. I don't know if anyone else, does, do, do your guys' places of employment do the staff Christmas parties? Do people still do that? Yeah. Right, we do that here, and I've done really well. I've been proud of myself uh, when it comes to eggnog consumption. Um, this year I've done pretty well, which means I haven't drank as much as I have in the past. And uh, for our staff party, we have everyone over at our house every year, and we you know, get all this food and desserts. And uh, my, wife, my wife bought three gallons of eggnog, three gallons. And we forgot to break it out at the staff party. So now I'm stuck with it in my, in my fridge. And um, so the debauchery begins next week, and uh, it's just going to get real bad. So anyways, uh, that's just me being transparent with you about my, my shortcomings, right? So anyways, <laughs> if you're new to the church, uh, we're in a book of the Bible called the Book of Acts. And uh, we've been in it for a while. We're in chapter 13 today, and we're going to do very, very little of chapter 13. We're only going to do 12 verses, which typically will do a whole chapter, at least a half of a chapter. We're going to do about a quarter of a chapter. We're not going to do much. Now, let me kind of catch up to where we are. Chapter 12 that we did last week, if you weren't here, um, very, very interesting chapter of Acts. Uh, The church has grown. It's grown outside of just Israel. It's gone up north. And one of the cities that it went into is a city called Antioch, which we're going to talk about a little bit tonight or uh, today. And um, and it's very hedonistic, very, you know, diverse city. Christianity has caught on, and it's, it's really moving around a lot by this point in the story. Now, a Jewish king named Herod, there was lots of Herods, but this one Jewish king, Herod Agrippa, Um, There was a famine going on to take the pressure off him. He kills one of the original 12 disciples, a guy named James, the brother of John, kills him. The people like this, right? Because not everyone likes the Christians back then. And so, not everyone likes the Christians now, but uh, they saw that this pleased the people. And so he went after Peter, right? Put Peter in jail, was going to hold him for a week, and then he was going to do the same thing to Peter. He was going to run a sword through Peter and kill Peter, right? We see in chapter 12 that Peter was miraculously delivered uh, via an angel. An angel takes him out of the prison. He gets out, and uh, we see that the persecution of the church is, is still going on, but it flips over to Herod, and Herod is in north Israel trying to, to smooth over some tension because of this famine. He wins over this crowd at the end of chapter 12. This crowd looks at Herod and says, this man is not a man. He is a god, Right? And what does he do? He doesn't deny it. And so God strikes him down. It says that he gets worms and is eaten until he is dead, right? That's pretty graphic. And so we actually know from history, because Josephus, a historian, wrote that King Herod had gotten worms and was in pain for five days and then died. So that's how we end up chapter 12. But the point of that is we see that God takes care of this guy who is leading the persecution against the Christians. And then as we see in chapter 13, the church keeps moving forward, all right? But one of the things we covered last week was this, kind of a a heavy topic. Do we unknowingly sometimes do things that are the opposite of Jesus, which would be Satan, right? Do we sometimes unknowingly do things that are satanic? And of course, at first, we're like, no, not me. I would never do anything that was satanic. And then we threw up some principles from the satanic church, right? And we saw those things and we're like, whoa, maybe we do some of these things sometime. And we need to be held accountable, right? Maybe we need to do some things differently. Okay, this week we're going to talk about this. I'm going to completely underwhelm you this week. You're going to leave this week being like, wow, I already knew all this. I could have stayed home or frolicked around in the beautiful Tennessee December weather or whatever. 
you could have used your time better probably. I'm going to completely underwhelm you today, right? And so you're, I'm going to teach you a bunch of things that, that you already know that all of you could already teach and, and you're doing and you're rock solid in these things. So again, uh, my apologies because uh, it'll just be just, just common knowledge today. But what we're going to do is this. We're going to talk about the fundamentals of our faith. And all joking aside, we keep builder, building larger and larger church congregations and more and more rock star pastors and rock star worship things. And we keep building this huge, what's become an enterprise of Christianity in North America. And we forgot what the church is actually supposed to do. So we continue to build this massive house of cards that can easily be knocked down pretty easily. And that's because we've forgotten our fundamentals. We've forgotten our foundation. So we're gonna go back to that a little bit today, okay? Also, my sarcasm switch was somehow flipped this morning, and so it's gonna come out today, and I just really apologize for that, okay? <laughs> but next week is Advent, and I'm only one of five speakers, and so you only get 20% of me next week, so that's something to look forward to, right? Okay, awesome. <laughs> so if you have your Bibles, we're in the fifth book of the New Testament, the 13th chapter. We're only doing 12 verses today. You should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Um, if you have a smartphone, the YouVersion app, everything is on there, and, uh, and that's pretty much it, okay? I'm going to pray. We will jump into this. I will not keep you long, and, um, and again, you guys can go out and enjoy the, the beautiful weather we have today. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. God, all joking aside, we just, we just thank you so much, God, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful churches in our community. Thank you, God, for the wonderful nonprofits in our community. God, keep your hand on our homeless brothers and sisters, Lord, during this time of year when it is, again, all joking aside, God, it can be absolutely miserable out, Lord, and we pray that you protect them and keep them safe. God, we love you. Open up our eyes today. Open up our ears. Help us not only to hear what you're saying to us, God, but help us to do what you're saying to us, God. We love you and we thank you, Lord. Be gracious with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to read a little bit. I will do my best to break it down, and let's see, uh, let's see where we end up. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid their hands on them, they sent them out. Okay, so again, if you have not been with us, the church in Antioch is in modern-day Turkey, so straight north of what is modern-day Jerusalem. And the church in this area, which would have been kind of like our equivalent to like a, a Los Angeles, um, very diverse, a lot of people, high concentration of people, uh, very culturally diverse, very, very artistic city, um, big, booming metropolis, okay? So similar to that, Christianity had actually flourished in a pretty big way. There was a couple of unnamed men who went into Antioch and didn't just focus on telling the Jews about Jesus. They told everyone about Jesus. So the church had caught traction there. And Luke, the author of Acts, says that one of the reasons why it caught traction is these different men who are up there ministering were using the gifts of prophecy and using the gifts of teaching, that that played a major role in their success. Now, Barnabas, that we've talked about before, 
He's the senior pastor of this church, and I'll get to him a little bit more here in a second. But he was the senior pastor of the church, but he wasn't a lone ranger. He didn't do it by himself. He shared the leadership roles with four other guys that we know of, and I'm going to give you that list here. Now, this is a very interesting group of people. Barnabas, the leader of the church in Antioch, had a heart for fringe people. He had a heart for people that weren't necessarily raised around uh, a Jewish faith or didn't know who the true God was. Barnabas wanted to reach out to the the Romans and the Greeks. He wanted to reach out to the people that worshiped multiple gods and did really hedonistic, awful things. That's who his heart was for. And so he wanted to go out and really connect with people that were very far from God. Another one of the leaders of the church in Antioch, I think this is the most fascinating one, was a guy named Simeon. Simeon, who was also called Niger, which meant black, and I don't recommend in our society that you just call your friends by their skin color, not the most culturally sensitive thing in our day and age, but they called him black, which is weird, right? But anyways, so there's this guy named Simeon, and he was an African Jew. And so what's fascinating with him is not that he's from Africa. What's fascinating about him is more than likely this is the same Simeon that was traveling through Jerusalem the day Jesus was crucified and a Roman guard pulled him out at random, even though we know it was God, right? Called him out at random and said, this man cannot carry his cross, help him. So this is more than likely the man that literally helped Jesus carry his cross up to to Golgotha when he got crucified. Imagine the stories this guy could tell, right? So he was one of the leaders in Antioch. And then you have Lucius of Cyrene that we know virtually nothing about. Poor guy, right? So you know a lot about the other guy, not so much about this guy. You have a guy named Menean, who Menean was more than likely uh, adopted into kind of a royal political family. He had a brother, or at least an adopted brother, right? He was the adopted one and he was adopted in this family. But his brother was a tetrarch, which means it was like a governor, but he was only over a quarter of a province. So it was like a quarter of a governor, essentially, but a politician nonetheless, a powerful person nonetheless. And then you have Saul. We all know Saul. He wrote about 70% of your New Testament, the Apostle Paul. Okay, so these are the five guys that are leading the church in Antioch. They were chosen by God and affirmed and confirmed by the church to be sent out to areas, they were missionaries, to go into areas that didn't know Jesus and that needed churches. And during this process, they didn't know what the details were. They were gonna be sent out, right? But they didn't know exactly where they were gonna end up. They didn't know how it was gonna work out. They didn't know where all the finances were gonna come from. They didn't know, but they did know this. They know that the great commission of Jesus, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the great commission of Jesus was for us to go out into places where people didn't know Jesus, to baptize, teach, and disciple. They knew that. So they knew that was what God wanted them to do, so they were going to do it. And they knew that they were specifically called, so they're going to honor God, they're going to respect God, and they're going to do what they need to do. Now, how did they know that they were called? How did they know that they were supposed to go out? Well, beyond just knowing the words of Jesus, this healthy, vibrant church in Antioch prayed a lot and fasted a lot. The church at this time, it's gonna sound so foreign to us, the church at this time didn't revolve around programs and gimmicks and buildings or budgets. The church revolved around their relationship with God and their relationship with other people. A novel idea, right? But that's what the church revolved around. We have this holy trinity in Southern Christian uh, Christian culture about budgets, butts and seats, and buildings, right? That's our holy trinity in the South. 
That's what most of the things we do revolve around, those three things. Now, those things can be avenues to what the real thing is, which is our relationship with God and others, but we have made uh, the instruments the objects of, of success, if that, if that makes any sense. And if we would get back to the basics, if the church would pray and if we would fast, we would see substantial change in the world around us. Societies are made up of individuals. And if we as Christian individuals would start praying and fasting more, we would see a dramatic change in our families, our marriages, our schools, our jobs, our culture as a whole. But the problem is the church doesn't pray and fast. Everyone okay? All right, it gets worse. <laughs> they also understood authority. These missionaries were successful because they understood the authority of the Bible and they understood the authority of the church. Another thing that we struggle with nowadays. So we learn later on, as these men traveled, they were still under the covering, they still had spiritual accountability from the church. And so if one does not respect the word of God, if we do not value this as an authoritative thing in our lives, and if we do not find the church as an authoritative thing in our life, mark my words, God will never use you for anything great. He will never use you for anything great. We must respect the authority of the word and we must respect the authority of the church. Here's the problem in our culture. Church just isn't sexy enough anymore. Seriously. We've strayed away from the basic functions of the church, right? Like pastors don't teach the word of God anymore because the word of God just isn't attractive enough. So we have to, you know, do like 50 shades of grace or grace anatomy or something stupid like that, right? and dumb down the whole church experience so much. You wouldn't believe how many pastors have told me over the years until we started running thousands of people that we would never grow if I taught so long and if I didn't have like catchy sermon titles because we don't believe that God wrote the Bible well enough. I know we don't say that, but it's how we live, right? It's not enough to hear the word of God and worship with other Christians. We need celebrities and we need pyrotechnics and we need all these fancy things and we need jugglers and live animals and all of this garbage, right? It's not real ministry unless I'm on another part of the world holding up an impoverished child so I can put it on Instagram. It's not real ministry unless we're doing something like that, right? It's not attractive for us to simply pray, read the word of God, go to church and serve our local community. Though that is not attractive to modern day Christianity, those are the things that will change the world. It is not having some celebrity from TV coming into your church and packing the room out. It is the day-to-day -day grind of living like Jesus. That's what will change the world around you. Prayer, fasting, church attendance, serving your community, and reading the word of God. Again, we're going to go back to this. I'm not done with that quite yet. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues, and they also had John there as their assistant. So they went northwest of Antioch. They hopped on a boat and sailed over to the island of Cyprus. Now, if you're uh, uh, into geography, right? So you have Lebanon, you have Syria, you have modern-day Turkey, and right kind of nestled in the little corner of the Mediterranean Sea right there, you have the island of Cyprus. This was also Barnabas's hometown. This was his home area. Now, Cyprus was important because it was very diverse. 
It was very affluent. There was a lot of money there because of all the trade that would come through Cyprus from all these neighboring countries. And it was also beautiful, but God was not there. What I meant by that is there wasn't a a, a huge religious population in this area. This reminds me a lot of Burlington, Vermont. We have a church that we sponsor up in Burlington, Vermont. I sent the pastor a text this morning, Adam. Up in Burlington, if you've ever been to Burlington, there's no fast food restaurants in Burlington. It's against the law to have drive-throughs in Burlington. So there's no Starbucks, there's no chain restaurants, there's no Taco Bells. The only chain they have is Ben and Jerry's, and that's because Ben and Jerry live there, right? And so it's on a lake. The University of Vermont is there. Everyone's beautiful, everyone's intelligent. They all drive Subarus. I mean, like, it is this utopia, right? Up in Burlington, Vermont. It is also one of the least Christian cities in the United States, 1% Christian in this area. The biggest church in Burlington, Vermont is about 100 people. That's the one that we sponsor. It's one of the only churches in that area. It's 100 people. Why is God not there? Because they don't need God, right? They got everything else, right? It's beautiful. It's fancy. Like there's, you know, you can go skiing over here and get your latte over here and everything is fine, right? Cyprus was much like that. A beautiful island, lots of money, educated people, everything was good, right? So meanwhile, as these men were being called to this island, the Antioch church continued to pray for them. Now, the Antioch church was losing their most prominent leaders. But here's the thing, they didn't have a problem with that. Listen, though they were losing some of their most prominent leaders and members of their church, they were kingdom-minded. They were less concerned with their numbers in the seats on Sunday. They were more concerned with areas that did not know Jesus having people being sent out to that area. That was their concern, right? And so here's what happened to the church in Antioch. They didn't get smaller. They were kingdom-minded. But because they were kingdom-minded, within the next 200 years or so, by about 300 AD, there was in the neighborhood of over 100,000 people just in the church in Antioch. They had one of the largest churches in the world in just a couple of hundred years. So when they went to Cyprus, to go to this area made a lot of sense. Not only did they need the gospel, not only did they need churches, not only was it very diverse and culturally very interesting, it was also Barnabas' hometown, right? So he had a connection. He could build an audience. And also, this island was not directly ruled by Rome, So they could move around a little bit more free. They could talk to the more powerful people a little bit easier. They went into this area. They would start ministering first in the Jewish synagogues, and then they would move to the Greek and Roman citizens. So what we learn is they had a plan. They didn't just go in there just being like, hey, we don't know what we're doing, but Jesus is with us, right? I mean, like they had a plan. They had an agenda. They went in and they stuck to their plan. Now, what we learn from that is this. Just because we're Holy Spirit-filled Christians doesn't mean that we don't prepare, and it doesn't mean that we don't do things excellently. I would argue that the Bible teaches us that we need to prepare, right? Of course we leave room for God to move, but I came from a church where, I kid you not, ministers would show up with like things written on a cocktail napkin, right? 10 minutes before service, and they're like, hey, you know, like, God gave me this. And I'm like, well, God gave me all this on Tuesday. Can't God work like throughout the week too? I mean, like, It doesn't have to be last minute for the Holy Spirit to speak to you, does it? And so we can prepare and we should do things to the best of our abilities. The reason why we do things to the best of our abilities is because the Bible says 
you're not just working for your boss, you are working unto the Lord. And whenever Christians are lazy and don't do their best, it's a bad witness for Christ. So we need to do the best we can. And of course we need to leave room, right, margin, for God to show up and God to do whatever he wants to do. We also see that these men brought an apprentice. They brought a younger Christian, a guy named John Mark. John Mark's mother led one of the congregations in Jerusalem. They didn't have big buildings like this. They met in homes, and her home was one of the congregations that came in and worshiped there. So they brought this young guy with them. And what we learn is this, and we see this all throughout the New Testament. The younger Christians, listen to me if you're a younger Christian, they needed to humble themselves enough and submit to the authority above them and do the grunt work. I'm talking about the work that receives no glory, right? What John's job was, was to carry the scrolls of the Old Testament and to carry the written down words of Jesus. And he traveled behind them carrying all the heavy bags and, hey, John, we need coffee. Okay, I'll go get coffee. I don't know if they drank coffee back then. You know, he would go do run errands for them. He did the grunt work. But what happens is, is when leaders, older Christians step up and lead well, the younger Christians eventually mature and grow up and they become the leaders and the cycle goes on and on and on. And this is what we're supposed to do. The younger submit to the older and then the older raise up the younger so the cycle can continue. It's called discipleship. All right, next part. I'm sorry, guys. You guys are such a good crowd too and, and, and you don't deserve all this today. It's, it's me. The problem is me. I go through this thing. Let me just pause here for a second. I know this is like the recorded sermon too, but this is a, this is a cycle that, that I go through uh, about every couple of years. I go through this cycle where I get so cynical about modern day Christianity because in so many ways we have strayed so far from what Christ wants us to be. And we wonder why we keep failing and why the church in, in North America is shrinking. It's because we're not being a biblical church. And so some, and I know that's not you. That's why you don't deserve that, right? Forgive me. Let's move forward. <laughs> so when they had traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. But Elumus, the sorcerer, that's the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, straight, stared straight at Elumus and said, you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil and enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You're going to be blind and will not see the sun for a time. Immediately, a mist and a darkness fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then, when he saw what had happened, the proconsul believed because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord." So the missionaries traveled across the island of Cyprus. They ended up in an area called Paphos, and there they meet a sorcerer. Now, if you're with us for Acts chapter 8, this isn't just a magician that, that pulls rabbits out of a hat. This is someone who is deeply involved in the occult, in witchcraft, into demonic stuff, right? The opposite of the Holy Spirit. This would have been a very evil spiritual connection, okay? Now, his name was Bar-Jesus, 
I don't know if you knew this or not, Jesus was a common name in the time of Jesus. There was a lot of Jesuses running around. Of course, only one son of God, but there was lots of Jesuses. This man's name was Bar-Jesus, which meant his father's name was Jesus. He's the son of Jesus, okay? And so Bar-Jesus, this guy Bar-Jesus, he served the proconsul, the governor. The sorcerer served the governor. The guy's name was Sergius Paulus, and he was not a Christian man, but he was an open-minded man. It says he was intelligent. He heard kind of the, the hubbub about these guys coming in with this, this talk of Jesus. He said, hey, go get those guys. I wanna hear what they're talking about. I wanna see what all the ruckus is about. And so as they came in, it says that they go from calling him bar Jesus to Illumis, which means corrupter. So the, Luke is calling him by what he is, he's a corrupter. He opposed Sergius Paulus hearing the word of God for two reasons, one, he was evil. He was tied into the occult, more than likely demonically possessed. He was against what they were bringing in, right, spiritually. The other reason he was opposed to it is it would cost him his job. This governor went to him for counsel, and if he became a Christian, he's not going to go to a guy who does witchcraft, right, for counseling. So he would have been out of a job. And so Saul sees this. And now for the first time in the Bible, Saul is called Paul. And Paul leaves no room, like no, no one to, to guess at what the motives of this sorcerer are. He calls him out, says, you're evil, you're full of trickery, you're full of deceit. And here's what we learn, guys, because it says Paul was full of the Spirit. If we are full of the Holy Spirit, listen carefully to this, please. If we are full of the Holy Spirit, God will give us the gift of discernment, which means that if we are full of Jesus Christ, we should get that gut feeling when we're in a place where we shouldn't be, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? That we should get that gut feeling that we should know when something's not right. We may not know all the details, but a lot of you know what I'm talking about. You're somewhere and you're like, this just isn't okay, right? Something is wrong here. That is the discernment of spirits. God will give us that. He will also give us the boldness to confront evil especially when people are trying to prohibit the advancement of the truth, that we will have enough boldness to say, stop, you're wrong, don't do this, right? That we will have that boldness. So why did Saul change his name to Paul? The reason why he did this, every Jewish person in Saul's time had a Roman equivalent of their name. So you kind of had two names growing up. You had your Jewish name and your Greek or Roman name. The Roman version of Saul was Paul. So for the majority of Saul's life, he went under Saul, which was the name of the first Jewish king, right? And he would have had that with a lot of pride, right? Like, I'm named after the first king of the Jews. But when he stopped ministering to Jewish people, and he started doing most of his ministry to non-Jewish people, Greeks and Romans, it made sense for him to take on a Roman name. Now, the reason why he did that is Paul says later in the Bible wasp. It says later in the Bible, I know, man, look at that. He's going to land right on my water. What a jerk, right? <laughs> so Paul said he was a slave to everyone in order to win more people. And what we learned from that, yeah, get out of here. What we learned from that is that we need to adapt minor things in order to connect with people. Do we compromise our beliefs? Of course not. But guys, 
I'm going to say this with some trepidation. We need to be very careful not to live in an exclusive Christian bubble because when you meet people that are not Christian, they're not going to know what you're talking about. So we have to know a little bit about culture. We have to know a little bit about secular music and secular movies. And we have to know a little bit about that so we can have conversations with people and connect. You may think I'm just an awful person for this. I can't tell you how many people I've connected with when I'm wearing like my David Bowie shirts at Starbucks, you know? You're a David Bowie fan? Heck yeah, I'm a David Bowie fan, blah, blah, blah. And we get to talking, and then eventually my occupation comes up. Eventually my faith comes up over David Bowie, right? And so some people would think that's terrible. I see that as me adapting a little bit to connect with people that don't know Christ. And it's just really good music. So anyways, <laughs> so Paul, <laughs> Paul calls out the quote-unquote son of Jesus, bar Jesus, and calls him the son of the devil. And he points out that he is full of all kinds of trickery and deceit. And this isn't a man, he's back, man. This isn't a man that just disagreed with the gospel. This is a man that was opposing, he was becoming opposition. He was becoming a stumbling block for other people to hear the gospel. So this is one of several accounts in the New Testament where a man or woman of God will look at someone who is more than likely demonically possessed or influenced and says, no, stop, you're not gonna do this, right? Grab this. <laughs> and so what we see is the petty magic that this sorcerer was probably accustomed to, whatever tricks he could do, whatever parlor tricks that got him this job with the governor was about to be contrasted by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul looks at him and says, you're going to be blind for a temporary amount of time. And it says this mist or this haze gathered around his eyes and he could not see. He went looking for someone to help him go home. Now, many people would see this as God being mean and that's not it at all. In fact, the way that Saul became the apostle Paul was God made him temporarily blind. It got his attention and he repented and changed. God gave this sorcerer the exact same opportunity gave him the opportunity to see the true power of God and to change, but there is no mention of him ever repenting and changing. So here's something we see at the end of this chapter. Interesting. We see one man see the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And he did not repent. It didn't change him. Another man, Sergius Paulus, this governor in Cyprus, he saw the power of the Holy Spirit and he accepted Jesus Christ, right? It doesn't mention his baptism, but we can infer because everyone else who believed got baptized, that we can infer that he got baptized and became a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay, so here's where we're gonna hang out for a minute. Got some time. We see in this chapter the fundamentals of the faith. Now, in our modern day Christian culture, we have made it a rock show. We've made it a Las Vegas entertainment show. We've made it something to where you sit there, right? Let us entertain you for an hour, no more than an hour, because we don't want to take too much of your time, right? We entertain you for a little bit. You go back and we'll see you next week. That is in no way a biblical definition of Christianity. The biblical definition of Christianity that is used all throughout the New Testament is this allusion to a marathon. Now, there are people in this room that love running marathons, right? But if you were to catch them like on mile 16, and just be like, hey, how awesome is life right now, right? They're not just like, oh, it's so good, so good. Been running for three hours now. Body feels awesome, like everything's clear, right? Feel wonderful right now. I'm like at my best, right? 
That's not the way marathons work. But marathons make you healthy. They give you a goal to strive for. They make the body better. They make the mind better. And that's what our faith is alluded to, a marathon, right? That as Christians, we don't bounce around from concert to concert and experience to experience and celebrity to celebrity. That's not the Christian walk. Again, it's not the two-day conference that's going to change the world, and I'm not completely against those, but again, it is that grind, it is that day-to-day living steady lives of going to church, of, of praying, right, of studying the Word of God, of serving your community, and in giving to your community. This, again, these are the components that will change you, they will change your family, they will change your marriage, they will change your schools and your governments, they will change everything in society. And to reach people that are not Christians, you and I are going to have to adapt a little bit. And we've seen that a lot in culture, right? You know, once upon a time in churches, they would wear the expensive suits, and I got nothing wrong with expensive suits, but that doesn't connect with everybody. So we have to adapt and we have to change the methods not the theology, that never changes. But we have to change the method by which we reach the lost. And as people who know the truth, if you're a Christian in here, bear with me for a second. If you're a Christian in here, we need to be quick to identify what is sin. That doesn't mean that you tap everyone on the shoulder at your office, hey, you're sinning, right? That's not good, that's not friendly. But... If you have someone in this room, especially a Christian, if you have someone in this room that you have a a relationship with, a rapport with, and if they are doing something wrong, you owe it to them to say, hey, that's not okay. That's wrong, right? You doing this to your wife is wrong. You doing that at work is wrong. You doing this in your personal time, that's not okay. And I don't say that because I don't love you. I do love you. And I want you to be okay. That we need to point out sin. We need to dig our heels in some, with, with some things with culture that have come into the church and we've compromised what is sin. Sin has not changed. It is clearly defined in this book and it does not move because your culture says it does. We need to be quick to identify heresy. We don't do that very much in church because quite frankly, no one reads the Bible anymore. We don't know what's non-biblical because we don't know what's biblical. So, so many churches teach bad theology, but the congregation doesn't know any better. They teach this prosperity garbage, and they teach all kinds of crazy ideas about who Jesus is and what sin is and what repentance is, if they even use that word anymore. And we fail to identify heresy because we don't even know the Bible enough to know what heresy is. We also need to be quick as Christians to point out divisiveness. That means gossip needs to not be listened to, It doesn't need to be propagated. If you hear someone talking bad about your church or each other or someone else, tell them to politely be quiet and you don't want to hear it. Do you know that gossipers are lumped into 1 Corinthians chapter 6 with haters of God, right? And you know those people that shroud gossip and slander in prayer requests, right? Hey, will you pray for so-and-so? She is cheating on her husband. You know what I say to people like that? I will definitely pray with them. And I will pray with you too because gossip will send you to hell just as quickly. I will pray for the both of you, absolutely. Amen. (laughs) We need to be quick to point out wolves and say, that's not okay. 
Stop talking about people. And if you're, hey, look, out of the church world, if you are in your place of employment, complaining does not go horizontally. Complaining goes vertically. That means don't go talking about your boss to everyone else in the office. It's not Christ-like. If you have a problem with your boss, go talk to your boss. Go talk to your direct report. Do it the right way. Be a good example. God is no fan of gossip. He is no fan of gossip, no fan of slander. So the only way to address sin, the only way to address divisiveness and division is through the Holy Spirit. We must have the gift of discernment to be able to discern what is right and wrong. We must have the gift of wisdom to know how to handle those situations, the gift of knowledge to know what to do. We have to have boldness. And above all these things, we have to have love. If you've looked at humanity lately, it has to be by the power of the Holy Spirit that we love people. We have to be full of the Holy Spirit to have compassion for people so we can identify things that need to change, but we can do it in a loving, compassionate manner, that we love people. So again, last slide, and I'll let you go. Here we go, underwhelming. As a Christian, you need to pray. That means one less episode of Stranger Things tonight. Right? I don't have time to pray, Corey. You watched an entire season in one day. <laughs> it might mean a little bit less time on Facebook. It may mean turning the radio off on your commute to work. Guys, whenever people, they don't, whenever people tell me they don't have time to, time to do something, that's not true. It's absolutely not true. We all have the same amount of time every day. It's not a priority. Let's just be honest. It's just not a priority. If you don't know how to pray, in our prayer room, we have sheets that you can fill out. They're like prayer guides. JT, my buddy here on the front row, is here almost every single morning at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, opens up the doors. There's a room in there. You can go in there and you can pray. It's the most underused room of this entire church. I kid you not. Pray. As Christians, we are called to pray. If you only talk to your spouse one time a week, your marriage is going to fail. If we only talk to our husband, our spiritual husband, one time a week, a relationship is not good. Prayer is not a thing you do just when someone gets cancer or you're broke. It is a lifestyle. It becomes a part of your day. You need to pray. You need to pray. You also need to read the Word of God. This book contains knowledge on marriage and governments and money. It, it gives you knowledge on how to interact with people. It tells you what kind of work ethic we should have. It is a fascinating book. The Bible in and of itself is a miracle. A book that took thousands of years to compile from the dawn of mankind to where it prophesies what happens at the end of mankind, that book is fascinating. It's the most readily available book in the United States. You can get it at any bookstore. They have tons of translations. They even have it in comic book form. You can get it however you want. What translation is the best? The one that you will pick up and read. Get that one and read it, right? You need to read the Word of God. You need to let it soak into you. It needs to be a part of your life, just like prayer. You also need to find a church home. If you don't like me, if you think I'm a jerk, if you don't like this building or the casualness of this church, that is totally fine with me. Find a place to go worship and serve and get involved and be there. But the game's on. We do four services on two different days of the week. So unless the football game goes on for 36 hours straight, you can make it. You can be here, right? Four services, two on Saturday, two on Sunday. And then we do stuff 
all throughout the week, right? Small groups virtually every single day of the week, both morning and night. You need to find a church and you need to go to that church. Whenever people tell me that they don't need a church home, wait till tragedy strikes in your life. Wait, wait till you have a funeral to do. Wait till you have things that go wrong in your life and you'll see how important the church community is. God has created us to be communal and he has created the church to be a source of strength for us until he comes back. Don't just go to church though. Serve either the people in your church or out of your church. Serve your community. Every single follower of Christ is called to serve and then give to the mission of the church. What do I mean? I mean money. I know you don't like hearing pastors talk about money. I don't know who gives in this church and who doesn't. In fact, I don't care. Here's the thing though. We feed 7,500 people a year on Sunday mornings. And I don't know if you knew this or not, food costs money. So whenever people look at the church and say, why isn't the church feeding more people? I look back at people and say, you're the church. Are you giving? I cannot buy food with my looks. You know, I mean, unless there's a store that just does that, right? And so if people want the mission of the church to advance, this church is double. We, we have percentage-wise double what the average church gives in this city. And we have 25% of our 3,000 people that tithe on a monthly basis. Now, if that convicts you, it should. Because if we were to have 100% of our church tithe at this church, we would have so much money that we could build homeless shelters and we could plant churches every six months and we could do so much missionary work all around the world. But what hinders us most of the time is people don't wanna give. They wanna sit back and say, Corey, why aren't you doing more for all of us? And I have to look back and say, no one will serve and no one will give. And so whenever people say, well, why aren't we doing this? I look back and say, when do you want to start? Give me your name and address. We'll email you and we'll get you going. We'll do it. I'm tired of people looking at the church and criticizing them when people don't want to step up and do something about it. I'm just kind of over it. We also need to adapt and we need to learn to, to, to have conversations with people without compromising our truth. We need to stand firm on what is right and wrong. And if you're unclear on what is right and wrong, it is right here. It is right here. Again, go to first, you don't have to right now, go to first Corinthians 6, 9. It tells you point blank what is right and wrong and what will prohibit us from getting into heaven. And so very clear passages that tell us righteousness from unrighteousness. And we need to stand firm on that. And guys, I'll just let you, let you that's not always going to be a popular thing to do. And if the book of Revelation is correct, which I believe it to be, it will become increasingly hard for people who stand by the truth to be vocal about it. It will become increasingly hard. We also need to use the gifts of wisdom and discernment, which means we have to be full of the Holy Spirit so we can compassionately identify what is wrong and so we can compassionately go out into the world and be a light. These are the fundamentals of our faith. This is what every Christian should be doing. All of us, not just pastors or missionaries to foreign countries. Every single one of us in this room should be doing these things. These are the core fundamental actions, the core fundamental ways we are to live our lives. This is it. And if the church would get back to this, if everyone in this room did this, you would see a dramatic change in virtually every single corner of your life every corner of it. 
Am I asking you to be perfect? Absolutely not. Are there days when I get so busy that I, don't, that, that, that I, that I forget to pray or forget to read? Of course, of course. That's why God is gracious. But this needs to be our lifestyle. It needs to be our lifestyle. I told you, underwhelming, right? You already knew all this. Seriously, I bet everyone in this room, I bet if I were to ask you what the fundamentals of what the Christian life looks like, I bet all of you could name those things. Easy stuff. Knowing them is one thing. Doing them is completely different. Completely different. We were about to get into a new year, right? Where everyone's going to eat kale and work out all the time for the first <laughs> two months. <laughs> hey, mark my words. Every year our church grows about 800 people in the first two months of the year. We'll do it this year. And what happens around June, September, starts to taper off a little bit because people forget the fundamentals. They forget the simple, simple principles that God has called us to live, us by, to, to live by. And when we forget these things, that's when everything falls apart. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, God, forgive my sarcasm today. Forgive me, Lord, if I've been mean or, or, or hateful. That was not, was not my intent, God. Lord, for all of us in this room, including myself, Father, I, I, I pray, God, that you just encourage us, strengthen us. Lord, fill us up with your spirit. God, give us wisdom. Lord, help us, Lord, to just get back to the basics. Lord, ha let us have a heart for prayer. Let us have a heart for the word of God. Lord, let us have a heart for the church, for serving the church and giving to the church. Lord, let us have a heart for people outside of the church. Lord, give us the, the wisdom to, to be able to have conversations with people and relate to people and, and love people, God. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. Without your grace, Father, we'd be utterly lost, God. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. And I pray blessings over every man and woman in this room, God, that as we get into this time of the year, Lord, it's so easy to forget it's so easy to forget that this season should be about you, Father, and we make it about us. So your heads are bowed and your eyes are still closed. There's men and women up here at the front to pray for you if you need prayer for anything. There's communion all the way around you at all the, the stations with the lamps. If you've asked God to forgive you of your sins, you're welcome to take communion. And if you're in here and you're not a believer, um, I just pray that something today has, has intrigued you and sparked an interest in you, and I hope you come back. Lord, we love you, God, and we thank you. Bless my brothers and sisters, God, and be with them until we see each other next week, Lord. It's in your name that we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. You guys are welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much for your patience with me.